We're looking today at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. And I want you just to follow along as I read this passage of Scripture. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God test them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? For, so I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage." For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we can't pray enough. There's a need for so much more prayer. Today we stop at the beginning of this message, and I ask you to speak through me and to use me today as your instrument to communicate the truth of this passage. This contains a section of Scripture that a lot of liberals a lot of people who don't believe the Bible point to and say that man and animals really aren't any different to one another. They both just end up in the grave. But Lord, we who have been studying this book know that's not what Solomon is saying because we know that his perspective is an under-the-sun perspective as he writes this book. Help us now to understand. May your spirit guide us into the truth this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In 1998, there was a man by the name of Mark Dallaher, and he was convicted of killing a 94-year-old woman in England. The only testimony that was given against him was from an expert witness who stated that the intruder had pressed his ear against the glass, uh, against the glass window of the woman's house listening quietly just before he slipped into the room and he murdered her. The ear prints, this expert said, were absolutely matched to those of this man, Mr. Dallaher. The trial made headlines, and the reason is because it was the first time that ear prints had been used to convict a criminal. Dallaher was sentenced to life behind bars in England's notorious Old Bailey Prison. But it turned out later that the evidence that had been placed against Mr. Dallaher was flawed. There was a DNA profile that was obtained from the ear print that proved it didn't belong to Dallaher. Instead, there was a new suspect that was implicated in Dallaher was set free. He told the British media these words. I've waited seven years for this day. I've spent six of those years in prison protesting my innocence to deaf ears. The last nine months have been a terrible ordeal. 
all as a result of the prosecutor's reliance on discredited expert evidence. And I think we would all say congratulations to a man like that who was wrongly convicted, to whom an injustice had occurred, and we are grateful that he is set free as a result. But the fact of the matter is that we know that that kind of injustice is often found across the world and even in our own country. We know of people who have been unjustly tried, who have been unjustly convicted, and who have been unjustly in prison. And later, because of some new scientific discovery, they are allowed to be released because it's clear that they were not there when the crime was committed. I can think of a man in our own state uh, who was a part of the criminal lab who made up things that he said when he was on the stand testifying against those who were being tried in a court of law. He didn't even have all of the degrees to be able to make the determinations that he was making as this expert witness. And he was shamed, and today he's deceased, but he was shamed and removed from the business of the, in which he was involved in. There's kinds of things go on in a lot of areas of life. There are injustices that occur every single day. I would tell you that I think that the Supreme Court this past week, by not hearing a particular case, perpetrated an injustice against a Christian woman on the West Coast in the flower business. And she will be financially ruined, even though the Supreme Court may take up another case at another time that deals with the same issue that's a stronger case or maybe has more of the tenets that they were looking for. Nevertheless, there was an injustice that was done to this Christian woman who was made to de decide between her faith or her friends, and she chose her faith. And she will be financially ruined as a result of that. There's those kinds of injustices, and the reality is that you and I see these things unfolding around us, don't we? And if you have any sense of a heart at all, it bothers you when you see the injustices that occur in life, and yet they're everywhere. Because we live in a society that's made up of sinful men and women, you and I included in that, made up of sinful men and women. And the result often is that we will twist things and we will turn things to our own favor, even if it means taking advantage of someone else. Think for a moment in the political arena. The injustices and the unfairnesses that are perpetrated, the utter, absolute, undeniable hypocrisy that occurs in the political arena today. From every party, men and women who, because of power or because of influence upon them, because they have those that are buying them various things and doing various things for them, because they're only interested in their own power, will perpetrate that upon people which is unjust and it's unfair. And the hypocrisy sometimes, if you stop and you look at it, is utterly and absolutely astounding. It's astounding. 
I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was at our state house praying for the opening of the legislature. I've done that two or three times, been invited to do that on two or three occasions. But on this particular occasion, I was ushered into the chamber where uh, you sit in the chair and you wait until your name is called. You know, you're sort of just a hood ornament to whatever else they're going to do that day. But I'm always grateful to be able to pray for God Almighty to guide the people who are guiding us in government. A politician walked over to me and he told me what I ought to pray about. I ought to pray about this and I ought to pray about that. And he told me some things that he ought, ought to say. And I thought, man, this politician, he must certainly be a believer in Jesus. When he finished talking to me, he turned around, he walked about a foot or two away and began talking to another politician sitting at his desk there. And out of his mouth came a string of the most vile words you could ever possibly imagine. And I thought to myself, that's the kind of hypocrisy we live with. That's the kind of unfairness and injustice that we live with in this land. Well, Solomon addresses that very thing in this passage of Scripture. As we know, Solomon is writing a book when he is living his life apart from God. He is living as if there is no God. He is not an atheist, but he is a practical atheist. He is living without a vertical view, being able to see life from God's point of view. He is living life only as he can see it, as it's unfolding around him. And he may be an extremely wise man, but you're an utter fool if you look at life only as man sees it. And Solomon is living his life, what he calls 29 times, under the sun. Instead of above the sun, looking from a higher perspective, he's seeing it only from mankind's perspective, only what is around him. And he comes to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 to 22, and he makes five observations. I don't know that I'll get through all five of these, or if I do, they'll be briefly, some of them briefly. But the very first observation he makes right out of the blocks in something that every one of us heard when we were growing up, and every one of us knows to be true, and we have trouble accepting, but we have to understand, and his very first observation is life is not fair. Life is not fair. I know you probably told your children, you'll probably tell your grandchildren that. I know that my mother and my daddy probably told me that a thousand times over the course of me growing up, living in their home for those 18 years that I lived there. Life sometimes just isn't fair. And Solomon saw it. He was living with the same kind of situations and circumstances that you and I are living with today, seeing things like we see. And he looks around and he says in verse 16, I saw under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And he recognized that Injustice existed, and he understood that unfairness existed, and he acknowledged that reality. Now look, he's only looking at it from man's perspective, but let's be honest. If we're looking at life from any of our perspectives as other men see life, 
apart from our Christian point of view, the reality is that's exactly what we see. We see the injustices and we see the unfairnesses of life. He'll talk about this on a number of occasions. If you want to follow with me for just a moment, in chapter 4, verse 1, he shows some of the unfairness that oppressed people have no one to console them. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Or if you'll turn with me to chapter 5, in verse 15, you hear him talking about the unfairness of workers who gain little in return for their labors. Chapter 5 and verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. He'll take nothing from his labor. Or to put it in our common vernacular, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul because you can't take it with you. He saw the injustice of the poor who were forgotten. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, he says, Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. He goes on and says that one of the injustices and unfairnesses is that the righteous are sometimes treated like the wicked. If you'll back up a page to chapter 8 and verse 14, you hear what he says, there is a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Or if you go to chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, you hear him talk about the unfairness of fools who are put into leadership positions. Chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. Here it is. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. Or there's the unfairness of good crops that are not guaranteed. In chapter 11 and verse 6, he says, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. And so he goes through this journal that he's writing about his experience of, of, of seeing life under the sun, seeing only what man can see and not having a God perspective on life. And he sees one injustice and one unfairness, unfairness after another, and it's bothering him. Does it bother you? It should. It should bother us, the unfairnesses that we see. Turn back with me for a moment. Let me show you an example of how God intended things to work. 2 Chronicles chapter 19. We're introduced in 2 Chronicles 19 to the fourth king of the southern kingdom. At this particular point in history, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. And the fourth king of the southern kingdom of Judah was a man by the name of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was one of the good guys. He was one of the good kings. He didn't do everything he should have done, but he did many of the things that he should have done. And he was, he was compared to his forefather, David, which was the greatest comparison that you could make. I might point out as we're going through here that Jehoshaphat, one of the mistakes he made was trying to make an alliance with the northern king whose name was Ahab. You know who Ahab is? Ahab is one of the most wicked of wicked kings that ever lived. And Jehoshaphat tried to make an agreement with this northern king, King Ahab. Listen to what God says to him in chapter 19, verse 2. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him, that is, out to meet Jehoshaphat, and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Wow. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek after God. Well, a part of the good things that he did is found in verse 5. Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. Listen to his instructions. He said to the judges, take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God. And no partiality, nor taking of bribes, moreover in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord in controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the chief fathers of Israel when they returned to Jerusalem. And he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. Don't you wish we could say that about our lawmakers? Don't you wish we could say that about every courtroom? Whatever case comes to you from your brethren who dwell in their cities, whether of bloodshed or offenses against law or commandment, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this and you will not be guilty. And he finishes verse 11 by saying, behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. Jehoshaphat understood that all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy that God had intended for justice to be meted out to his people, that people would be, ju would be judged justly when they came before someone who was judging a case, judging their case. They would get justice. They would be treated justly. And Jehoshaphat sets it up so that there will be that kind of justice throughout the land. There's another example of what I'm talking about, but on the negative side of it, and that's with Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas, two of the most wicked uh, young men that you'll ever meet. But in 1 Samuel chapter 2, these young men who knew what was prescribed by the law of God related to the, the observance of the sacrifices would take a three-pronged hook, have a servant take a three-pronged hook and reach in and take the meat that didn't belong to them. 
They were entitled as priests to a portion of it prescribed by the law, but they didn't want just what God prescribed. They wanted what they wanted, and they reached in and they took more. And the fat that was supposed to be the Lord's and burned to the Lord, they took it as well. And it says that the people hated coming to make their sacrifices to God because they saw the unfairness and they saw the injustice. On one side, you see Jehoshaphat setting up a legal system where the people can bring their grievances and their problems and they can receive justice. On the other side, you see two men, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, who do the exact opposite, who act in an unjust and an unfair way. And that's the reality of the world that we live in, isn't it? That's the reality of the world we live in. Look at Luke chapter 18 for a moment. Luke chapter 18. You'll know this story of the unjust judge. Listen to what the scripture has to say about it. Luke chapter 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men, men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my, from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he, was, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man. Wow, not only does people, do people know him that way, he refers to himself that way. Verse 5, yet because the widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her coming continually she wearies me. And Jesus calls him an unjust judge. Our world is filled with injustice. Our world is filled with unjust judges. Our world is filled with things that are unfair. And if you're looking to live in a world where everything's fair, you're looking for the world that is to come, not this world. The fact is, life is filled with things that are unfair. There are unstable jobs. There are orphans. There's judicial corruption. There are blown tires. There's broken legs. There's sex trafficking. There's leaky faucets. There's failed adoptions. There's monthly bills. There's project deadlines. There's rainy vacations. There's broken marriages and chronic back pain and pride and slippery roads and severed relationships. There's selfishness and racism and uh, bee stings in the ever-present death of loved ones, and the list can go on and on. This is our world. This is the world we live in, and it often isn't fair. And sometimes we just have to be reminded this isn't heaven, and this isn't the new heaven or the new earth where Christ reigns. Why is it this way, Pastor? It's this way because we live in a fallen world, that's why. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you discover the reason why things are the way they are. You discover that God placed Adam and Eve in this incredibly beautiful garden, and they could eat of any tree of the garden but the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve was tempted. Adam directly disobeyed God. 
and plunged all of mankind under the curse of sin so that Romans chapter 8 says, even creation groans and travails until now. Even creation itself groans and travails until now. We look around at the creation and we see the extreme heat. At times we see the extreme drought or we see the extreme weather or we see a building fall in Florida and we see things that just are seemingly unjust. They're unfair. We live in a world that's cursed by sin and life isn't always fair. We have, to come to, we have to come to a place of accepting that fact and that reality. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's what Solomon is saying. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. That made me think of what Isaiah said. Listen to it, Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. I suggest to you going forward that in America we'll see more of that, where the wickedness of the land will punish the righteous and the righteousness of the land. Life isn't fair, Solomon says. He sees it. It bothers him. It bothers me. It bothers you, doesn't it? It bothers those that are watching this broadcast. It bothers us to see those things, but those things exist, and those things will continue to exist until the King of kings and the Lord of lords arrives, and he is ruling over the affairs of mankind. Those kinds of things will go on until there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. And so Solomon begins by telling us that life isn't fair, but then he makes a second statement, and that is we should trust God's judgment. We should trust God's judgment. He says in verse 17, I said in my heart, think of that, he's talking to himself. He's reasoning within himself. I said it in my heart, not out loud, I'm thinking this in my mind where there's injustice and there's unfairness. I said in my heart, next, the next three words you should highlight, you should underline, you should bold them. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, there he is, he's reasoning again. He's thinking within himself. He's talking to himself. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Now, I want to begin with that second verse, verse 18, and come back to verse 17. 
Do you know what he's saying in verse 18 when he says he uses these injustices, these unfairnesses of life to test mankind that they may see that they all by themselves are like animals? You hear what he's saying? Living in an unjust world without God means we sometimes become beast-like in action and in reaction. Think about it for a moment. You come to a four-way stop. You're on the left. The car that comes at the exact same moment is on the right. You know, being the car on the right, that you have the right-of-way. But somebody sitting behind the wheel to the left of you decides that they're going to press ahead and they're going to get out before you can get out. And they rush forward, quickly going through the four-way stop. And it's happened to you not once, but it's happened to you many times. And you look at it and you think, if I had a truck, an old beat-up truck, and suddenly the beast-like character begins to come out from within us, right? That beast-like character begins to reveal itself. Or think about the times that you stood in line somewhere, maybe at an amusement park, maybe at a bank, and maybe at some place where you were trying to get in a restaurant, and somebody walks up, and they walk around, and they break in the line. They begin a conversation with somebody that's up front, and then they just stay in that place. And you behind them, that beast-like nature begins to reveal itself. God allows the injustices and God, the injustices and the unfairnesses of life. God allows it to reveal those beast-like character, that beast-like quality that's within all of us. What do we want to do to that person who breaks the line? Think about the mother, true story of the cheerleader whose daughter didn't make the cheering squad. And so she plotted how to kill the daughter, the girl that took her place. God uses the injustices and the unfairnesses of life to expose what we think of as the injustices and the unfairnesses, to expose the beast-like qualities that, that dwell within all of us because all of us are sinners. You, you've thought of some of those things. I was watching, I don't know if it was the National Geographic channel or if it was Animal Planet. I can't remember which of the channels I was watching, the documentary about wild animals. They were doing a doc documentary of wild animals in their habitat. And this particular one had to do with a pride of lions. And they were laying in wait for uh, what uh, was a herd of, of zebra, sometimes called a dazzle of zebra. They were waiting in, they were lying in wait trying to find the right moment. And, and then they, they find the weakest amongst them. And they, they lash out, and several of them take after the weakest amongst them, and they bring him down or her down, and they begin to kill and destroy so they can eat. I thought about one of our cats. We had two cats, Pishi and Sheba. We were privileged to live with them. They allowed us to stay in the house, and we appreciated that dearly. But one of them was allowed to go out and come in. The other always stayed in. And I can remember 
one of those cats coming home with a dead mouse between its teeth. I'm sure the cat came back thinking, they'll be proud of me. Look, look what I've caught. Look what I've done. I've saved you from having to scream because the, the mouse is dead. But what do animals do? Animals act like animals. Animals behave like animals. Think about the fox and the hare. The fox chases that rabbit wherever he goes until he can catch that rabbit. That's how animals behave. That's why you see the lawlessness in the lamb today. People acting like animals, responding like animals. And God says, I allow the injustice and I allow the unfairness of life to expose what is really in the heart of mankind. Some of you can think of somebody you'd like to punch in the face. I'd like to give them one good slug in the face. Solomon says, you need to trust God's judgment. Notice verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there. You remember what he said in verse 1 of chapter 3? There's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Well, there is a time there amongst the times and seasons of life, there is a time when God will judge. God will hold mankind responsible for the way he or she responds to the given circumstances of life. God will hold us. If we're believers, we'll be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ if you're an unbeliever, you'll be held account at the great white throne judgment. But we will be held account. And what he says is, rather than you acting like a beast and behaving like a beast, what you ought to do is leave the judgment to God. Have you discovered that you have a hard time meeting out justice in a just fashion? Because you have the tendency toward partiality just like every other sinful human being has the partiality toward has partiality toward that sinful nature, that beast-like nature. God says, "You leave that to me." I want you to turn with me to, to Romans chapter 12. Listen to how God says we're supposed to deal with the injustices of life. People who treat us wrongly and treat us unfairly. How should that florist on the West Coast respond to those who are treating her so unjustly and unfairly. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says it. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Not like the beast of the field. It's a dog-eat-dog kind of environment. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Trust God's judgment. Some of you are angry. 
Some of you are angry at things that are happening to you, happening in your life. Some of you are angry at a former spouse. You're, you're angry at a former employer. You're angry at a neighbor in your neighborhood. You're angry. You're angry. And that beast-like nature rises up within you. I'm going to get even. And Solomon says this world is a world that is filled with injustice and unfairness. He acknowledges that it exists. And then he says, God shall judge. You know, if you walk past a courthouse or a courtroom, probably somewhere, you'll see Lady Justice, won't you? Have you seen her? She's wearing a blindfold. She's in one hand has the scales where the evidence is going to be weighed. And in the other hand, she has the sword because when the evidence weighs against, the sword of justice is going to fall. But she's not supposed to be looking with preferential treatment. She's not supposed to be looking through the bribe that somebody's given to her. She's not supposed to be looking because of the color of your skin or your economic background or where you live in a community. But the reality is the only one who can judge in that kind of a perfect manner is the perfect one, the God of heaven. Are you suggesting, Pastor, that if there's something, a recourse for me by way of the law that I shouldn't, I shouldn't take that? That's not at all what I'm saying. But where the law can't do any more for you, you don't take the law into your own hands. You don't take the law into your own hands. We like to walk around and bang our chest and talk about, I got this many guns. We'll take you down. You come to me. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. You don't overcome evil with more evil. You overcome evil with good. Paul Harvey used to tell the story about a, name, a man named Gary Tyndall. He was charged with robbery. And he was standing in the California courtroom of Judge Armando Rodriguez. Tyndall asked permission to go to the bathroom. And he was escorted there. And there was a guard put outside to watch the door. But Tyndall was determined to escape. He climbed up the plumbing. He lifted a panel in the ceiling of the bathroom. And he started crawling overhead, headed south going to get out of that building. He went about 30 feet when the ceiling gave way, and he dropped to the floor right back in Judge Rodriguez's courtroom. <laughs> it may look like people are getting away, but they haven't been to the final courtroom yet. Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, what, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. God is the ultimate judge. Life isn't always fair, is it? He says, trust God's judgment. His third statement is death is certain. Verse 19, I won't get through all of these. Verse 19, 
He says, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. Now here, you should have some advantage here. Unlike what he says here, you should have some advantage here. Because you've had a preacher stand here and tell you what is the interpretive principle of this book. What is it? Solomon is seeing life where? Under the sun. And the fact of the matter is, when that's your only perspective, when that's all you can see, it certainly looks like man and animal ends up in the same place because they both get put in the ground. They both have breath to to, to breathe. They both have life in their lungs. But when it's gone, they're gone. Our cats are buried in a yard, and so are my parents and other members of my family. And that's how it appears when you look at life under the sun. You understand that by empirical research, you cannot determine what comes after this life. You can't determine it by what you observe. You can only determine it by the revelation of God. You can look and study all you want. Doctors can look. I saw one time an article where they supposedly weighed the body of somebody before they died and after they died, and I forget what the number was, but a few grams difference existed between those two. And somebody said, that means that's the exit of the soul. The soul must have weighed that many grams. (laughs) My soul weighs a lot more grams than that, apparently. You can't, by empirical research, determine. I mean, just by observation, looking around you at life under the sun, and that's all you see. People who don't know God, who don't believe this book, who don't understand the revelation of God, who can't look up and see that there's a creator God in heaven, they will never understand that there's any difference between the way men die and animals die. It's the reason why your children are taught every single year that they evolve from a lower life form. Their death is no better than the death of any other animal. Solomon says death is certain. It's absolutely certain. Both animal and human beings die. As one dies, so dies the other. I've got news for you. Your pets may live 7 or 10 or 14 or 20 years But they're going to die, and you may live 70 or 80 or 90 or, I hope, all of you, 100 years and have your minds. But you're going to die. How foolish is it to live only for this life? But when that's all you can see, that's all you understand, right? I mean, from the purely humanistic perspective, that's how things appear. The answer about what happens after death isn't found through human observation. It's only found through divine revelation. Aren't we thankful that we have the completed Bible? And we hear Jesus say to his disciples in the upper room, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. How do we know there's a heaven? Because we've got a Bible that's inspired. Because we've got a God that's revealed it. How we know there's a heaven? Death is certain. Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed unto man once to die. But after this, what does he say? The judgment, the judgment. You understand that there's significant difference between mankind and the animal kingdom. Mankind is made in the image of God. The animal kingdom is not. Mankind has a spirit that is God conscious. The animal kingdom does not. Mankind has eternity written in their hearts. The animal kingdom does not. When Hebrews says there's a point, time to, there's an appointed time to die, and after this the judgment, the only thing most people ever think about is the death that they'll have to die. They never think about the judgment that's to come. I'm reminded of a doctor who's a medical doctor who was a Christian himself. And he once said that many people tell me they're afraid of dying, but no one has ever said they're afraid of the judgment that comes after death. But you better stop and think about it. Look with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to finish here. I'll come back to these other points later. Luke chapter 12. Are you all with me? Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Listen, you better think about more than this life because while your teachers in the college classroom may have told you that you're just an advanced form of some mammal, some advanced form of a, another form that existed before and you have evolved to who you are today, that you're nothing more than an animal yourself, is it any wonder why our kids act the way they act? Why they conduct themselves in the fashion they conduct themselves? Why they do some of the things that they do? When you tell them they're animals, why not act like an animal? When you tell them they're the design of the creator God, made in his image with a spirit and eternity in their hearts, that changes everything. People say it doesn't matter where I send my kids to school. It absolutely matters where you send your kids to school because they're teaching your children not just science and math and history. They're teaching them a worldview. And the reason we lose so many kids out of college age is because we send them to secular colleges and they get their minds and they change their worldview to something that is anti-God. I've gone to meddling now. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. That's good. We love that, don't we? And he thought within himself, 
You remember who Solomon was talking to? He's talking to himself. He thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, By the way, it's not a good idea to talk to yourself. That can put you in an institution. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. He's only thinking about this life. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I've got my retirement plan. I know where I'm going to spend the last years of my life. And when I get too sick to take care of myself, it's paid for for me to be in a personal care home until hospice comes in and I get called out of the world. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Did you hear Solomon say that earlier when we were studying? I mean, I've worked for all of these things. I've done all of this. I've got it all amassed, and I'm going to die. And I don't know who's going to come behind me, whether they're going to appreciate what I've done or they're going to carry it on, whether they're going to do something good with it. I don't know what's going to happen to it after I die. This man dies. Verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is, here's the above the sun perspective, is not rich toward God. Do you hear what I'm saying? I know it's not a popular thing to say anymore. But I've reached the age where I don't really care much anymore what everybody says. It's, I don't have long left anyway. You can vote me out. I can retire if I have to. Not that I've tailored what I said prior to this. How sad it is that we live as though this is all there is and there's nothing more. Death is certain. He says two other things, and I want to mention them to you. Fourthly, naturalism, he says, leads to despair. Naturalism leads to despair. What do you mean by naturalism, preacher? It means that nature is all there is and God doesn't exist outside of nature, if at all. In other words, all that we have is what we can see, touch, feel, and experience in this life. And that's precisely the viewpoint of Solomon in this book. And it brings him, verse 21, to say, who knows? Who knows? When all you have is observation and you don't have revelation, who knows? The spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. Who knows what happens after you die? And those words, who know, express the absolute despair. Who knows? I don't know. I want to know. I don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? Who knows? At the end of verse 22, he says, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Nobody can do that but God. But if you can't see anything but what's immediately around you and you've discounted God altogether, you can't see what revelation can provide for you. You can only see what observation can provide you. 
And it is never enough. But then the final one is make the best of your life. What does he say in verse 22? So I perceived, that is, I see, I saw. He's not talking to himself now. He's looking. So I perceived, I see, I saw that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. Let me close with this illustration. According to a Russian legend, there was a peasant that was going to receive by a deed all the land he could encompass by running in one day. When that day came, he ran and ran and ran, and he got back to the starting point at the end of the day, and he was tired, but the sun still wasn't down. At least it wasn't quite all the way down. So he took off in another direction to acquire some more land, and he got back just as the sun dropped below the horizon, and he dropped dead. All that running to acquire all that land And when he got back to the starting point with all the land now his, he dropped dead. That's the picture of the futility of modern living. People gain something, but they can't enjoy it. They work for wealth, but then they lose it. And Solomon says, we need to stop and learn, stop and smell the roses. Stop trying to have a house as big as somebody else's house. Cars as nice as somebody else's cars. Stop competing with everybody else and stop and enjoy the blessings of God that are already around you.